Hi, everyone. I'm Andrew. And I'm Michael. And this is the Endurance Innovation Podcast. Hey, everyone, and uh, welcome back to Endurance Innovation. Joining us today is triathlon coach David Tilbury Davis for his second appearance on the show. And uh, we're slotting this interview into our Getting Faster series that we just started a couple of weeks ago. And uh, David's expertise, well, David has many expertises, but today we're going <laughs> to today we're going to leverage David's uh, coaching expertise and talk about some of the ways that you could potentially structure your season. Uh, depending on your goals. So there are as many goals as there are triathletes out there, but uh, we've picked three just to keep it a little bit more coherent. And uh, those are going to be, what would you do for a first time uh, iron distance race, David? Then how would you approach an early season long course race? So specifically for us in uh, colder climates, there are some challenges associated with racing early in the season. And finally, uh, a quick chat about how would you approach uh, a short course athlete who is doing quite a bit of racing in our not very long race season. So with that preamble, uh, David, thank you very much for coming back to the show. It's my pleasure, guys. Nice to be here. So let's jump right in. Uh, question number one, if you had a first-time Ironman competitor, I know that uh, with your current roster of, of folks, that's not the typical athlete that you, you coach, but uh, you can put yourself in that place and uh, give somebody the advice that you would give if they were training for a long course race for the first time. Sure. Um, I mean, I think there's a, a little bit of background work that one needs to do. Um, I think it would be important to understand their sort of athletic age or their athletic history, you know, what what's what sort of sporting prowess or sort of lack thereof are they are they coming at this this goal with? Um, what's been their level of, of activity? Um, and then once you sort of understand that, um, I then want to get a good understanding of, you know, what is a feasible amount of time that they really consider in their working stroke family life that they can manage and and typically how I go about that is I get people to fill out a sort of you know a week a week planner and I say you know color in the week planner with all the times of day when you're you know eating sleeping with kids walking the dog going to church doing the shopping etc and then uh, and working and then on another week planner I say you know fill in all the times that you you know you feel you can train swimming biking running gym or you know gym exercises at home and and invariably those two things add up to more than 168 hours which is the number of hours in a week so um the first thing is that sort of reality check of okay well what how much training can you do consistently and then and then having a discussion with them about okay well if this is what you can do consistently does that marry with you know what we might deem to be a reasonable amount of training to prepare you for the ironman now the reality is you don't need to be doing 112 mile bike rides every single week for 30 weeks before your race and two and a half three hour runs every weekend 
um, for, for 30 weeks, you know, leading into your Ironman. However, um, I think there is a certain need to do a certain amount of significant volume as you get closer to ensure that, you know, you're comfortable with that, you've practiced your race nutrition. And so, you know, it might be discussing things like, is there flexibility in there? You know, do you have time off work? Is there uh, situations where you might, you know, as a, as a couple or as a family or as an individual, go visit relatives and, you know, be in a situation where you could, you know, get a bus or a train with your bike and then cycle home. Those kinds of uh, scenarios where you can create um, complementary outcomes to all the other factors within your life. And then I'd also want to understand from a psychological perspective, what is this person's sort of um, makeup in terms of uh, drive and commitment and and where I'm going with that is this idea that for, for some folks you know they, they absolutely positively need to ride 112 miles a couple of times before the race to know peace of mind I can do this um, and and that's okay um, but likewise there's other individuals that might say you know what it doesn't really phase me you know I can happily do a four-hour bike ride at the weekend given my circumstances but I don't feel a crushing need to do 112 miles so um, you know that's okay as well so you know the same with the run you know do they do they are they adamant that they have to do a 20 miler or are they comfortable that they're just long run might be two and a half hours at some point in the future so I think that's an important context to draw because you should never make assumptions on what is necessary it's more a case of what is appropriate for your you know physiology your anatomy and and the outcomes that you're looking for you know the the reality is there are some people who because of their genetics can train you know eight to eleven hours a week and go crack a, a nice fast sub 10 hour ironman now most of us hate those people but the reality <laughs> is they exist um and and they should and those individuals should never be put on a pedestal as a shining light of an example of you know what you can achieve on limited time because that's just garbage that's just you know being disingenuous and how often do you see articles in the in the sport media doing just that talking about how oh yeah you can definitely yeah you can definitely do you know 9:39 hour ironman on 8 hours a week oh it's plenty i'm really glad you brought that up <laughs> the other one andrew is it you know the one the one that you also see is the you know this person is incredibly successful they work 70 hours a week and they're just a totally awesome athlete and they're training 25 hours a week and i i look at that and i just think well you know, that that's just an accident waiting to happen in terms of that person's endocrine system so uh, yeah i think we always need to make sure people aren't looking at aspirational models that aren't truly reflective of real world circumstances and, and health. I'm really glad you brought up that point about doing a sub 10 hour, 10 hour Ironman on eight to 11 hours of training. Um, Cause I've always found that kind of frustrating when you hear interviews with people saying, Oh, I've got this job and I only managed to, to get eight or 10 hours in and still go off and, and do a fantastic race and qualify for Kona on that. And I don't, I, I agree. I don't think that's possible for everyone to do. Yeah. It's been possible for very, 
it's possible for very, very few individuals. I've been fortunate enough to coach one a bit like that. Um, I also have a friend who has been in sport of triathlon for many, many years. He used to be a professional. You know, he's somebody that was asked by a, a wheel stroke bike manufacturer to ride around the Kona Ironman course at 25 miles an hour, which he promptly did. And, you know, he has written, you know, quite extensively on Slow Twitch about his experiment of sort of doing sort of sub 10 hours in an Ironman on sub 10 hours of training. And you know, kind of the Cliff Notes version was, eh, he did it, but it sucked. <laughs> so, um, you know, and that's with the genetics. So it's really important to, to set people up for success. I've also had situations where I've had somebody come along and say, I've just started doing triathlon. You know, I come from a powerlifting background. I want to do an Ironman in six months and I want to do awesomely good at it. And by the way, I'm a management consultant and I probably fly, you know, um, abroad twice a month. I said, okay, right. Well, you know, this is the reality of what you need to do. And pretty much after about six weeks, we had to have a come to Jesus discussion around, (laughs) you know, maybe your desires exceed your capacities. I was going to ask you about that because uh, there's often a moment in that coach athlete relationship or, you know, for self-coached athletes, athlete athlete relationship where uh, you, you have to find a way to set realistic expectations. And, uh, and sometimes those are difficult because, you know, the, the fact of the matter is the folks that uh, take to the sport and, and really enjoy it are the, the, the go-getters and the type A folks who are used to, you know, getting their way and, uh, and, and seeing a lot of success. So how do you navigate that? I just think it's about being authentic really authentic in terms of what what doing an Ironman entails. You know, people people read the media, they they see all the sexy articles and you know, you can definitely buy a good hour and a half of speed if you've got enough money in terms of, you know, bike, helmet, wind tunnel, wheels, tires, trainers, you know, you can buy a good hour and a half of speed. But the reality is there's a certain level of work and commitment that's needed and, and, and there's a certain impact that that has on one's health. And I, I just think in the long term, you know, that there's a responsibility on any coach to have the health of an individual first and foremost, front and centre. And and if I just look at the situation and say, hey, Michael, you know, th- these are my rates. I'm going to just take your paycheck. I'm going to kick you out a 16-week get ready for an Ironman training program and I'm not really emotionally invested in you as an individual, that's never really going to bode well for the coach-athlete relationship. No, I totally agree. As as an athlete who's either self-coached or just engaging with a coach for the first time, how would you go about determining what kind of genetic needs you have for training? Like if you're one of those eight-hour per week athletes versus if you're someone who would benefit more from 15 or 17 hours? Well, I think it goes back to that, you know, doing the week planner and saying, okay, well, what can you actually do with your circumstances? Okay, and let's just say that this is a scenario where it's it's either a work issue or a family commitment situation where somebody says, I can train 10 hours a week. Okay, fine. What's your, you know, what's your sporting background? You know, oh, I'm 47 years old. I used to run in college. Okay, you know, what did you run? Well, I did a bit of track. I ran 1500 and steeplechase and you know okay well you know did you do did you ever do a 5k yes what did you do in 15 15 okay we're dealing with a pretty big engine here 
right. <laughs> unless you've smoked smoked sixty a day for the last <laughs> thirty years. You know that, that that's the kind of you know questioning process I go through. You know there are always some people that are like a hidden gem that maybe didn't really do any in you know aerobic sport but are just genetically blessed and that can very quickly be apparent when you know you ask them you know oh you know what when you go for a run and you know you're at a sort of a I can almost chat pace you know what kind of pace are you running at and and you know a, a good coach should be able to contextualize kind of fitness and thresholds and zones off you know a a fairly reasonable and easy to execute sort of talk test of okay well your aerobic threshold is right around the point that you might pause for breath in you know saying a particular phrase of about 28 to 30 words so for americans that would be the pledge of allegiance and if you can kind of make your way through that pledge of allegiance or for other people the nursery rhyme bar bar black sheep and and not really have to pause for breath then you know you're close to aerobic threshold if you're if you're pausing for breath every sort of fifth or sort of eighth word then you know you're right at aerobic threshold so there we go is that you don't need a heart rate monitor to do that you know you can anybody can go do that i'm glad you have uh you had a, an example for all the the moms and dads out there for the the talk that David. i really appreciate that <laughs> on a personal level trust me when i wrote an article about this in an english triathlon magazine i had to rack my brains because the research was done in america and i was like okay how many words in the pledge of allegiance it's like oh it's about 31 and i was like well okay i can't use a a Shakespeare sonnet because sonnets are always about twenty-five words. That's too short. I was like, oh, what? What do I use? Ended up being a nursery rhyme. So there you go. Yeah, perfect. I love it. <laughs> and for those of you not familiar with the classic "Baba Black Sheep," here is my at the time three-year-old singing it. Of course, in his rendition, it's "Blah Blah Black Sheep," but uh, you get the idea. Blah blah blah. Yes, sir. Yes. So we've had this conversation with our athlete uh, or the athlete has had this conversation with uh, him or herself. Uh, they understand sort of, hopefully they understand what it's going to take to to perform the Ironman. Uh, let's say they have a good long eight to nine month window to get there. They're, they're pretty smart about season planning. Uh, what are their next step? How would you lay out their season uh, to, you know, to improve the chances of success on race day? Well, I think I think for the majority of individuals, even the pros, the the reality of Ironman racing is resilience. You know, you know how biomechanically resilient are you? How posturally resilient are you? You know, you you definitely need some aerobic fitness, but you know, you need to be able to comfortably sit on your bike for for argument's sake, six and a half, seven hours. You need to be able to, you know, truck along in a marathon for five hours. You know, there's a certain amount of resilience that that takes. So in terms of the building blocks of success, I would uh, argue that that's done through, you know, focusing on creating um, initially good movement patterns and then moving into 
so, you know, the capacity to sustain those movement patterns. And then finally, learning to express those, you know, at sort of goal, race pace, sort of efforts or speeds. And, and to kind of keep cycling through that process, you know, over a period of weeks. So, you know, you might do a week of, you know, working on good movement patterns and then a week of um, focusing on sort of more strength orientated work. Um, I don't mean lifting a barbell in that. I mean, you know, like running, going on a hilly trail run um, and then moving into, you know, intervals at sort of goal race pace, you know, four and a half hours in a marathon um, and, and, and to keep cycling through that. And the reason that you keep cycling through that is because you're kind of just building layer upon layer upon layer where you can lengthen the intervals and build the resilience steadily at a time and, and also keep the person sort of cognitively engaged because I think that's the one thing that people forget with long distance triathlon is we're just this incredibly unique sport where most people are racing for 14 hours 15 hours and and as a consequence to, to be you know just present and engaged for that length of time is is almost impossible um and as a consequence um when you're doing the training, you know, week upon week upon week upon week of, of just focusing on, on one particular aspect of training for sort of 10 to 12 weeks, because that's what we know from sports science is physiologically the most beneficial period of time to really, for argument's sake, develop threshold. Um, for most people, it's just, you know, it's just cognitively destructive. So actually, I think it's better to chunk it down, for want of a better phrase, if you're going to eat an elephant, you know, eat it in small chunks. Um, so changing things up, you know, week to week or every two weeks or every three weeks is a good way to, you know, layer things, you know, to build things layer upon layer, but still go through a good development cycle. So you touched on resilience there, and I think that's that's a really good term, um, both cognitive resilience as well as maybe physical resilience, but not so much in um, I'm able to run this distance, but I'm able to run it under the kind of conditions that I'll see during the race. Because in the past, um, taking from my own experience and the mistakes I made when I was racing for a or training for a long late season race, I had not spent nearly enough time in aero position just because I was on the trainer and I kind of got lazy and I'll admit that. And in hindsight, it was a big mistake because when I got out to the race course, I didn't have that neck strength, even though I could do the power that I needed to, uh, my neck was the limiting factor, which I had not expected going in. Um, and as a result, um, that impacted, I would say my cognitive resilience as well, because now, um, I've got this extra pain and this extra stimulus that I'm trying to not think about or trying to put in the back of my mind. Well, you've also got, you've also got an increase in oxygen demand. You've got an increase in calorie demand because mm -hmm. you're using muscles to stabilize your head that aren't conditioned to doing that. Yeah. So it was, uh, it was a big mistake I'd made. And for anyone who's getting ready for their first Ironman, that's one of the big takeaways I'd have is just train under the same conditions as much as you can, uh, just to, to provide that training stimulus. Absolutely. Yeah. It's a, it's a common mistake. I, th I think it's a mistake that uh, people make that we focus a lot on the, the metabolic side of things that, you know, where we try to elevate threshold or, or VO2 max. Um, and it's, it's the, and even if you can get those metabolic markers where you think you need them to be successful, you know, by hour 12 and 13, as you say, David, then there are going to be 
mechanical elements that that are likely to let yes. us down so that we you know then this is i'm taking this from our conversations in the past that won't won't allow us to express that metabolic fitness absolutely so Andrew's question is an excellent segue into our um, into our second question, when he said that he'd done a lot of training uh, indoors on the trainer uh, heading into his Ironman race, and uh, he was therefore not able to hold position as well as he could have. And the second question, of course, was how do you train for a long course race that is going to be early in the season, which means a couple of things. Um, thing one is that most of the training, especially on the bike, even if you can run outside, uh, the bike training will be mostly or exclusively indoors, which has its own challenges. Uh, and there's also a uh, temperature, well, specifically a heat adaptation component. So David, if you can talk to those two elements of uh, early season racing. Sure. Um, I mean, I think there's probably two ways that I'd look at the... Um the situation with the bike. Uh, interestingly, a couple of months ago, I had a back and forth um, discussion with a friend of mine who's a, a journalist in the UK, also happens to be a Masters world champion in the velodrome, uh, Nicholas Cook, and Phil Burt, who was the physio at um, Team Sky British Cycling through various Olympic cycles. Somebody had kind of raised a point around training in, in the position that you'd race in or it was also around you know sensitivity to sort of saddle height changes and phil made a really interesting point in the discussion that the sort of the three four of us were having which was typically if somebody um is doing a lot of riding on a lot of different bicycles so a mountain bike a fat bike a commuter bike a road bike a triathlon bike I'm just picking, you know, it would be nice to have all those bikes in your garage, but there are, there, but there are some people <laughs> that, you know, they, they have a, a mountain bike for the winter and they have, you know, a commuter bike that's built like a tank for going back and forth to work and they have a tri bike. And, and what was interesting was Phil made this point that when there's a great deal of variety in sort of the posture that you take up on the bike and the generating different stimuli on different muscles, then you become less sensitive to very small changes. Um, oh, interesting. And, uh, and I thought that was a really, really fascinating point that he made. And so I think you know, that's one way of getting around um, doing the work on the bike when you live in the Northern Hemisphere or um, you, you know, you're, you're doing an early season Ironman. And the second thing is there is ultimately definitely a need to get used to holding that aero position. Um, and I would certainly say that holding an aero position indoors and, and using, you know, mirrors to, to perhaps focus on holding a really good position is a really good way to, you know, just train your body to get used to holding that position. And the reality is holding aero indoors is probably harder from my point of view, from a biomechanical perspective, than holding air out, outdoors. I'd agree. Because when you and, and it's why there's this sort of age-old debate of you know when I train on the trainer indoors, I put out this amount of power, but then when I'm sat up indoors, I put out a little bit more power, and then when I go outside, you know I put out different power to when I'm indoors, and and um, you know it's an age-old debate, but it's also why you know certain training platforms you know, give you the ability to have multiple thresholds for one sport on, you know, for cycling. 
um, because they basically accept that as a given. Now, the reality that I've seen, and this was brought up in a conversation about Lionel and a recent test that he did, um, is that typically, and this is just in 25 years of coaching and seeing all sorts of athletes doing all sorts of numbers, indoors, outdoors, sat up in aero, I would say on average, the difference between riding indoors, sat up, and indoors in aero is about 10%. The difference between riding um, outdoors uh, sat up and indoors sat up is 10%. And the difference between riding outdoors in aero and outdoors sat up is about 10%. Now, so when you effectively do that comparison, what it basically means is that the power that you put out indoors sat up is probably about the power that you'll put out in aero outdoors. Makes sense. There is something to be said about becoming accustomed to a position though. So yeah, the more you train a position, the you can you can bridge that gap. I know that in years past when I've done very that. little aero training in the, you know, in this in in the winter season where I've been riding my road bike on the trainer and I've been well sitting up the whole time, there was a huge gap between my power and aero and power of sitting up. Whereas now I'm trying to be a little bit more mindful of doing more work in aero. At least the kind of the um, uh, the aerobic threshold and below work in arrow. Uh, now I'm finding that gap's a little bit smaller. It's probably closer to five points for me. Yeah, I mean, and and you can get creative as well. You know, if you, you know, if you're one of those people that just likes to wrap up and go out in cold weather or wet weather, you know, you you can get creative. There's a there's a, a sort of a legendary sort of Ironman triathlete, stroke Uber biker Bjorn Anderson um, from Sweden who um, sort of once said that, you know, he was renowned for being in a very aggressive aero position. And he was sort of one to talk about the importance of specificity. And he was once said to talk about how in the winter in Sweden, he would have a cyclocross bike set up with exactly the same pad to seat drop um, and reach. And he would go outdoors on the snowy, you know, roads for three hours, come back, change clothes, eat some soup, warm up, go back out for three hours. Now, yeah. that's pretty hardcore. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not suggesting everybody needs to do that. Um, but, uh, but, but you can definitely get creative. I've heard of people that live in Alaska putting, you know, tri bars on a fat bike. You know, you, you can definitely get creative. Um, but ultimately, if you prefer to stay indoors, then there's a, probably a need to do at least 50% of your riding in the position that you're going to hold in the race. Especially at the powers that you hope to be operating at when you're racing. Yes. Yeah. For instance, you know, what I, what I typically tell folks is if you're doing top end stuff, you know, above threshold and sit up, get the numbers up. Yeah, get the you know get everything working, and because those 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 are the powers that for most of us we're nowhere near when we're racing even short course. Absolutely, absolutely. Okay, so what about um, heat adaptation? So you're going from let's say classic example of a uh, southern Ontario winter where we are, even though this one's been fairly mild. It's uh, you know most days are around zero <laughs> degrees Celsius. You can speak for yourself there. It's, I said uh, it was. I said southern Ontario. <laughs> I didn't say I didn't say southern Alberta. That's that's your problem. Yeah. Minus 40 is not an outdoor condition. 
I guess I'm in a very balmy, toasty three, four degrees in Helsinki. Um, yeah, well, I'll, I'll take three degrees today. So yeah, so if you're you're operating in that environment, and sure, you're riding indoors where it's warmer. Um, but uh, then you've got uh, the classic example for us is that a really popular race in you know in my circle of, of triathletes is Texas. Everyone wants to do Texas because it's supposed mm-hmm. to be fast because it's fairly flat. But it's you know it's an early season race for us. It, it hits before our warm weather hits, so there's no real way to practice warm weather riding or running at least outside, uh, unless you go to a training camp? I mean, I think there's a hierarchy of simplicity and complexity that probably starts out with, okay, first things first, turn the fan off, um, you know, lose, right. the, lose the ventilation and, and drive up the, the, um, the humidity and, and heat in the room that you're training in. So, you know, you close the door, put a towel uh, at the bottom of the door. You know, if you do that and you do a three-hour indoor bike ride and – close the windows and turn the fans off, um, you're probably going to need to repaint your room in about six months and, and use, <laughs> you know, use mold, yeah. mold resistant, uh, cleaner remover. Um, that, that's kind of, you know, simple step one where you're going to increase the thermal load. If you want to increase the thermal load more, you know, you can use infrared lamp, heat lamp and, you know, then, you know, really after that, you're getting into a much more sort of scientific, you know, you can overdress as well. That will drive up your sweat rate um, and help you get used to uh, acclimating to the heat. But the downside to that is you want to probably change a couple of times in the period of, of several hour bike ride indoors, because otherwise, you know, you overdress, you get hot, then you get soaking wet. And then, you know that you don't really continue to stay hot because you're in wet clothes um so better to sort of change into another set of dry clothes and continue to be overheated but really if you want to be more scientific about it for those people in the northern hemisphere and i've had athletes do texas that live in scandinavia um you know you have to resort to things uh, like using a sauna after training sessions um or using hot a hot bath there's plenty of information out there on the internet about um, sauna protocols or hot bath protocols. Probably for most people, the hot bath is the easiest. And the nice thing about both protocols is the reality is you don't need to do it for weeks and weeks and weeks and weeks before your race. You know, you you only really need to do it for anywhere between five to sort of 10 days leading into the race. That was going to be my question about the the amount or the duration of of, of this kind of. Uh... It's not a, it's not a lot because really what you're doing is you're increasing, you're you're increasing the plasma volume um, within your blood that 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 then aids with, you know, coping with heat. Yeah, and I remember David, you sent me once a a little infographic on how to do this, so I will post this in the show notes um, along with the the episode. So for those of our listeners who are interested in the protocol that David's talking about, the sauna or hot bath protocol, um, I'll post that. Now, a question I have around that would be basically doing this protocol through the the season at other times. Uh, would the increased plasma volume result in the ability to handle more training load or tolerate dehydration or something a little bit better? Or is it only really the heat acclimation that you see the benefit from this playing out? Um, I'd, I'd argue that it's, it's only really the heat acclimation. I think, I think if I, I think if I started conjecture around, does it, you know, 
improve you know your fluid your you know your thirst demand or i'd be stepping over a line where i haven't got sort of background information on um it may well be the case but i'm not gonna go out on a limb and say that's the case but what i do know is you know it it definitely helps in terms of heat acclimation. And I do know from personal experience, um, even though my Cozumel race didn't go quite according to plan, I was certainly a lot better off having done some of the heat acclimation than I would have been otherwise. Um, I think there were still some things I needed to do in order to really get that performance up there. But uh, the sauna protocol and hot bath protocol certainly helped in my case, and even riding without the fan turned on. Yep. It's about um, it's about triaging the situation as best as you can. You know, I, I know... A friend of mine who's a professional athlete who lived in Scotland used to basically go in the garage, you know, tape, had all the the gaps around the garage door kind of taped up with, you know, duct tape, blocked all the the uh, the door doorway into the garage, and then just you know cranked out the the power on the bike and just created a lot of heat in the garage. And then to go a step further, they would go in the bathroom and. You know, turn the shower on, put the turbo in there, close the door, turn it into a Turkish steam room, and um, <laughs> you know that that definitely helps. Doesn't do your trainer much good or your bike much good, but <laughs> that's another approach you can take. Brutal. But I would caution people. In all seriousness, I would caution people about doing that because it will very quickly drive up your core temperature, and there's a risk there that that you know you might then end up sort of suffering some heat stress right it's not a workout that you it's not the kind of protocol you want to follow if you're trying to do quality work if you're trying to do intensity no absolutely not it's 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 acclimation work yeah which is fairly low intensity yeah so from my my own personal experience with this too there was a protocol that i had done for a research test and it was basically this so it was 31 degrees um 70 or 80 percent relative humidity and it was 45 minutes at i think it was 75 percent ftp and my heart rate started off at around 140 and by the end of the test it was almost 180 um, and that's just the, the cardiac drift that occurred there. So that was an indication that my body was really about to reach the breaking point. And they were actually, for medical reasons, they were about to call off the test. Yeah. But uh, I, I finished the protocol within about a minute of them terminating it anyway. Um, but that's, for me, that's kind of the indication that I'd watch out for if your heart rate starts to increase, if you're doing these kind of very intense heat acclimation training protocols. Yeah, you definitely want to try and keep an eye on you know, what, how your heart rate is responding and, and how your body temperature is responding. One last question about this uh, this particular line of uh, interrogation, I suppose. How do you modify your race targets? So let's say power on the bike and uh, uh, pace on the run if you suspect you may not be fully acclimated. I mean, you can do all of these things, but in reality, you're still coming in uh, most likely with at a deficit when comparing yourself to someone who say lives in Texas and uh, has been training in that, in those conditions, you know, well leading up to the race, do you make any modifications to pacing plans? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, I can think of one scenario where, you know, traditionally I've always coached, let's use the bike as an example. So I've predominantly coached people with, you know, power as a power and perception of effort as the primary indicators and then heart rate as a secondary proxy for the rate of work in a relative sense. When I had an athlete that was racing Malaysia and you know lives in a Scandinavian country, what we did, we had a very good understanding of 
you know, where their heart rate is when they race in an Ironman on the bike from, from previous races um, on, and previous workouts. Um, and so then we took that heart rate and then we made them train in an environment that was fairly high thermal load. And we just said, don't really care what the power is. We're just going to key off heart rate. Because ultimately on race day, that would be the limiter where we'd say on race day, we'd say, okay, well, you know, we, we know that we want you to race around, you know, a 145 average on the bike. And so, you know, you're going to be racing, you know, for five hours. So the first um, hour and a half, you know, you're going to average no more than 140 BPM. And then the next hour and a half, you're going to average you know, 145, and then the next hour and a half, you're going to average 150 because there's going to be some natural cardiac drift. So the way you flatten, well, the way you flatten the power curve is you allow for that cardiac drift, um, and and that just worked really well. So that's another approach that you can take where you contextualize sort of how your body rates the work um, using heart rate, and then use that as a mechanism of driving sort of specific intervals that are, you know, race specific intervals. Got it. Uh, let's move on to our third question, which is how would you manage uh, an athlete season who is perhaps a short course athlete or maybe a road racer, road cyclist, um, who has quite a bit of uh, a concentrated race season where uh, he or she may be racing, let's say every other weekend um, and not very long races, let's say, you know, sprint or Olympic distance. So, anywhere from an hour to two and a half, three hour events interspersed once every couple of weeks. Um, let's assume that, and I'll, I'll narrow the focus down a little bit more. How do you manage the actual uh, race season part of the training? Like once you're already in the, in that, uh, in that season. I mean, I think the first thing is you really want to start out and I've, I've worked with a couple of professional cyclists in the past and I think you want to start out really trying to understand where do they need to be from a physiological perspective kind of when they start their race season and, and I mean not really start the race season but I mean sort of the first A race and you sort of build towards that and then right. after that you're just triaging the situation and basically saying okay well the reality is is there's going to be certain races which are effectively B or C races, there's going to have to be um, races that are B or C races. And and so we, we look at those races as being nothing more than the actual sort of high quality work that you need to do in training. And so once we've said, right, okay, those races are you know, your high intensity training session, not in the high intensity interval. Right. but then your, your kind of high intensity training then we can then say okay well during the week you know how are we then going to maximize the benefit that you get from that race and how are we going to ensure that you continue to ma- maintain fitness or even build fitness and the mistake that most people make is they use the time between races to try and actually do more quality work to get fitter and faster and and then still treat all of the races as a race and i I think that's the mistake you can make in that situation where you've got you know two races a month or three races a month 
This is actually quite reminiscent of my experience in Ontario because we had uh, a fantastic race series, Multisport Canada, that had, I think it was eight or 10 races over about two and a half months. So if you're attending all of those, uh, which we did when we were advertising, um, that makes for a really compressed season. And I found that basically doing what you were saying, where the races are the quality work, and then in between, you're just kind of maintaining, um, that worked really well for me. And there's something that feels fantastic about um, just going out there every couple of weeks and getting that that good feeling of accomplishment from doing a race really well and knowing you were at your limit and that you couldn't have gone much faster. And I felt that the psychological benefit from that helped build on getting good training sessions in between as well. Yeah, it's effectively where you're not really tapering for the races because actually really the race is part of the training plan. Right. Yeah. And how do you, uh, this is a, a an issue that I have with uh, where I've had in the past with folks where, you know, we plan out our race season and there are, as you recommended B and C races in there, if there's a compressed schedule and they're, they're, they're stated as B or C races, but you know, in the heat of the moment, the athlete goes out and then, you know, still performs like it's an A race. Well, <laughs> what do you do? What do you, what's the conversation that you have with that individual to, uh, to kind of rein them in? Um, to an extent, I need to rein them in you know if ultimately that's the joy and pleasure that they get from from doing the sport then what I actually need to do as a coach is I need to manage their recovery ah okay and actually I need to you know I need to make sure I'm doing a really good job of managing their recovery so they can they can go out and smash themselves every two weeks because that's what they like to do <laughs> that is an excellent answer because I mean, ultimately, you know, the long-term view is, is, you know, folks like you and I are there to support them and not to dictate to them what they should be taking away from the races. Yeah, absolutely. Hmm, I love it. Well, that was a lot of information in a very compressed period of time. David, uh, <laughs> always a pleasure to chat. My pleasure. Always have to take notes, although with a podcast, with uh, you know the benefit of, of then going back and, and editing a little bit and uh, writing show notes, I, uh, at least I don't have to take notes when I'm, uh, when I'm talking to you on this platform. So uh, I hope our listeners got something out of this. I'm sure that, uh, that you did. There's, there was something for most of you, I imagine. And uh, I just want to say thank you to David one more time and uh, just uh, encourage folks to tell their friends if you enjoy the show and uh, to give us a rating or review on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thanks. All the best. Take care.